Bedford-Stuyvesant. I left BK in 76 and went to Columbus, Ohio, but I'm a Brooklyn boy. You know, Brooklyn is a Wait, blood Wait, you're type. in Columbus now? Uh, I used to be in Columbus. I'm in Virginia Beach, Virginia now. Oh, my Lord. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have a good time. And yes, Code Keepers, Code Keepers, we're on a great mission today. So get ready for this show. This show, we're going to be dealing with poverty. We're going to be dealing with our community, reclaiming our community. And I know you're saying, well, Seiko, man, what's this have to do with empowerment? What's this have to do with black empowerment? Stay tuned. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, The Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine, that means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. Code Keepers, we're in for a joint today. We're here with Majora Carter. She's a real estate developer, so you know that's part of my heart. She's an urban revitalization strategy consultant. What's that mean? We'll figure that out. And she's an <laughs> author. And she's a New Yorker. You know, I'm a big time Brooklyn boy. And she's from the South Bronx, the South, South Bronx, South Bronx. <laughs> oh, snap. This is going to be a great conversation. This is going to be a great conversation. And as you can see, she's the author of the book I'm holding. And I've actually been reading the last few days. Uh, my bookmark is right there. Oh, man. Yo, Code Keepers, reclaiming, she says your, I'm going to say our, reclaiming <laughs> our community. Whoo, this is, this is deep. This is deep. I mean, because look, gentrification is real. And for many of us, you know, who are involved in real estate like I am, like you are, we think that, you know, gentrification really could be a good thing. Um, so we're going to have to talk about that. But mm -hmm. first of all, Let's start with this urban revitalization strategist. What they do that at? You know, what is that about? Tell us, <laughs> give us the details, you know, let's enhance our vocabulary. Sure. So actually it was a, a, a phrase that um, was, was, I was deemed that by the MacArthur Foundation when I won one of their fellowships, like robot back in 2000 and I think. And, and, you know, they didn't really know what to call me because I wasn't just like a community activist. I wasn't, you know, in economic development, but it was like, I did sort of like a mix of both of them that really worked to support our communities from the inside out, you know, starting with both, I did project-based economic environmental development in my hometown of the South, South Bronx. And um, so that's what, and so I actually liked it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm working to revitalize my community from the inside out. That's, so I'll take it. So I'd literally decided to call myself that. And that's what I am. Wow. Among many other things, but yes, I'll take it. What are some of those other things? I'm a real estate developer um, and I am now an author as well. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so, you know, we put up earlier that she was a real estate development developer urban revitalization strategy consultant and an author we weren't kidding y'all she she's doing the doggone thing yep. um 
And I want to start off with a building note. So I understand that someone's ancestorship led you to developing a park, which may have kind of set you along this journey. Um, can you talk about that? Well, it's interesting because other than, so the, for the park that I started, you know, that was definitely the piece that led to my journey. Um, and that really was just like recognizing that there were parts of our community that were not even, not on anyone's radar. And in particular, this beautiful natural resource, you know, that was there. I mean, it was where, you know, the, 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 the original folks that were here, the Seminoi folks, he were like, this was like their ancestral land. And so I got to know that. And then there was also the people who um, are working on, uh, you know, the, the enslaved Africans that were buried here, that were there to, to, um, to, to work for the, the, the slaveholding families that were at once in New York for a time. But what, but I think the other piece, what it led to was, and this is literally my ancestor, so the reason why I'm in the South Bronx to begin with is because my dad, who was a Pullman porter, you know, one of the on one of his trips um, out west, he went to the at a racetrack in Los Angeles, won fifteen thousand dollars in the late 1940s, came back to New York because he was living in Harlem at the time, and he ended up plunking down that fifteen thousand dollars to buy it, this the house that I grew up in for cash. And, be, and in part because, you know, that at that point, you know, big old black men were not getting, you know, they weren't able to finance houses. So, of course, he had to because of all the, the, the racism associated with giving black folks money or not even giving loaning them money. Um, so he had to buy it for cash. And so he but he wanted the house here in this neighborhood specifically because there was this old rail station there that was allegedly supposed to be reopened and, and reactivated for rail service. And he was a Pullman porter. So he was just like, oh, that's where I want to live. If I can find a house there, that's where I'm going to go. So that's where he went. And now his daughter, his youngest child, owns that station <laughs> and is transforming it into an event hall that I am convinced is going to be like the next major place as a music venue in New York City. It is that it's going to be that hot. And people could get married there. They could have weddings and, and quinceañeras and sweet 16s and all sorts of parties. But basically, like, that's my vision for that. Ashe, Ashe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, hey, we thank the Elevated Ancestry, mm -hmm. particularly your father, for making that seed. Yep. It's amazing. It's amazing what whew, I know, right? Crazy. Crazy. Wow. No, but it's not crazy. It's, it's, it's God. It's our ancestors. I, I'm with you 100%. Yep. I'll show you on that. Your book, Reclaiming Your Community, kind of goes along with that. Mm -hmm. Your father claimed that community. And now you're coming up with strategies to make sure that we can reclaim our community in a way that's meaningful, financially beneficial, and safe. Yes, yes. So, so talk to that, because normally when people think of reclaiming our community – we really don't think they're safe. We really mm -hmm. don't think there's an economic opportunity there. Right. We really think we're doing it for the culture, which is, I don't think necessarily the entire picture. Right. And, you know, having people reclaim it for the culture, like that has not worked well for us because it doesn't give any people real reasons to want to stay and reinvest. Like we can talk all we want about how people should stay and how they should do stuff. But unless we give them reasons to stay, they're not. I mean, because they just don't. 
And so what I did was, was take a page, you know, borrowed it from, from, from business, which is, which is a talent retention strategy, because quite frankly, if you've got a business and you pour resources into your team, you know, they get professional development, different training, blah, blah, blah. You're not doing that. So they go and work for somebody else. You're doing it because you want them to actually support the company that you hired them to work it. But we don't have that same kind of mentality in terms of communities like ours, um, you know, wherein, you know, it's but we actually create, I think, a sort of a, a talent repulsion, you know, system within our community where the talented ones are taught early and often to measure success by how far we get away from our communities. And what we're trying to do is, is just completely change that narrative that our first fruits should really go into or at least for some of us, and it's not gonna be all of us, and I get that, but some of us at least should really be looking at our communities and, and recognizing that the systems that were put in place to literally expect us to leave our neighborhoods, that we need to take it back and use it to, to really redevelop our own communities for us. And reclaiming them involves, unlike gentrification, which is about outsiders coming in to change the community to suit their best interests, reclaiming right. means that the talent that was born and raised in our communities um, are there to improve the surroundings in our own economic future. And you discuss retaining homegrown talent. Mm -hmm. So how do we find this talent? How do we benefit and provide resources to this talent and then ultimately retain the talent? Right. So, you know, it's not hard to, because, you know, bottom line is, um, <laughs> you know, low status communities. And I'm, when I mean low status, I don't mean there's something wrong with the people in the community. What I mean is that there are people, you know, is that by both, you know, internal and, and internally and externally, people look at those communities as a sort of like problems to be solved, you know, almost as if there's no real, um, that there's nothing, that inequality is assumed in those neighborhoods. And so what we're saying is that, you know, the talent is already there. We Talent is always born in those communities, but we don't work to keep it there. And from what we what we know, and because we did this research and when we first went, decided to go into real estate development, we asked people in our own community, you know, what do you dream about What in terms of the community that you want to live in? And we weren't surprised when they said things that they wanted to have a community that was worth living in, in terms of lifestyle infrastructure. So whether it was like, you know, restaurants and bars and, you know, bookstores and, you know, places where they could you know, meet people and enjoy and be themselves and express themselves, but also see like cool people around them as well. Like they didn't want like the, the trappings of poverty that we often find in low status communities and people know what it looks like. It looks like, you know, instead of banks, you'll see, you know, check cash and stores and pawn shops and payday loan centers. You know, you'll see instead of like diverse dining options, you'll see, you know, dollar stores and, um, you know, and, and corner stores and, you know, or bodegas and, you know, not great quality food. Um, and then you'll see lots of very highly subsidized affordable housing, you know, for only very poor people. And so even if people who want to stay in their community, housing isn't necessarily even being built for them to stay in because they don't meet the, the very low income requirements. Intriguing. Now, as a real estate developer, we're always looking to maximize our investments. Can we truly maximize our investments by developing low-income housing? Well, if you are a developer that's depending on um, the 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 um, the 
the developer fees by building low-income affordable housing, but I'm not promoting building low-income affordable housing, you know, solely. I do think that there's a time and a place for it, but I'm actually fervently, you know, against the continued concentration of only building very low-income housing in low-status communities, because what it does is concentrate poverty. And there are stats that show that all over the place. And, you know, and it also exacerbates all of the issues associated with concentrated poverty from low health outcomes to high, low educational attainment, more people being in job, involved in the justice system. Um, you know, just it perpetuates this lack of hopelessness in those communities, so much so that like whenever people can afford to leave, they do. And that is the reality of the situation. And it's the kind of thing that nobody really wants to like acknowledge, but you know, them's the facts. And do we want that to be like the legacy that we continue to, 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 to create, that we measure success by how far we get of out away from communities that born, that born raised us? And what does that say about how we think about ourselves? And to me, that sounds like we've just embraced the lie of white supremacy, that there's something wrong with us and our communities when we're in them. Hmm. You've been quoted as saying nobody should have to move out of their neighborhoods to live in a better one. Yes, I have been. And that's on on, on in a museum somewhere. I mm -hmm. understand. Not just any museum. It's in the the, the Smithsonian Museum, the, the the Museum for you know African American you know African American culture um, you know in D.C. and it's all part of the permanent collection. Thank you very much. Wow, pop your collar, Queen. That's that's. <laughs> Impressive. Not 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 only do you have a breathtaking and intriguing look on how we can empower ourselves to more to to better empower our communities, mm -hmm. but you yeah. were the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool. But what's what? what's what's more? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. What's more? What? What's more? What's Go more ahead. exciting to me? You know, is that there are plenty of folks around this country who I think see the value of reclaiming our communities and who want to see more of it happen. I mean, I just put it in print um, because I felt like it was needed to, and, and in part because, you know, I felt terrible about how much I embraced the, the lie, you know, from being a kid that there was something inherently wrong with my community and by association, me and everybody else in it if we stayed in a community like that. And I'm like, no, like why, why do we, we don't have to embrace that lie and act like there's, that that's something that we have to feed off of. Cause it's, it's not true. No one is coming to save us, but we, so how about we try to save ourselves and create not just, you know, surviving, but actual thriving communities. Cause that's what the people in our community told us. Like they like nice things too. <laughs> they mm. wanted to feel like, things were special for them. Who doesn't want that? And why do we not expect to have things like that in our communities? Like, I refuse to, to think that, you know, our people want second rate anything. They don't. I mean, I mean, we were like the epitome of style and all sorts of class, if you ask me. It's like, we're so, just so beautiful. And we deserve nice things around us. And I'd like to build them and support other people in their quest to do the same thing. Wow. We deserve nice things around us. That's that that right there is beautiful. We deserve nice things around us. But think about it. Like 
so, so many of us don't think that our communities right. are, will ever be that. Right, right. You, you know, and, um, you know, we built a, this cafe. We weren't trying to be in the cafe business, but I realized nobody else was going to come and, and respond, you know, to the kind of data that we got about what people were leaving our communities to experience. And some of it was just as simple as like a nice place to hang out with their friends. And so we were actually looked and sought to get somebody else to come and build a cafe, but they didn't. <laughs> so we did. And, uh, you know, and what we did was build the Boogie Down Grind, you know, which is this, it's, it's an homage to hip hop because of course South Bronx is the birthplace of, of it. And, you know, you're welcome, everybody out there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Salute to Cool Herc. Salute to Cool Herc. Yeah, um, no, it was like super exciting. But what, like one of the like, most beautiful things that I've ever heard was you know we had it it's it's like still there obviously but it's on the on a what a, a a busy corner in our community and what was so cool is that especially during the the pandemic when we were outside you know we would go some kind sometimes kind of late but our but our community responded in this beautiful way and I would hear all the time like oh my gosh like yeah you might y'all might have gone a little late the other night but mm -hmm. I haven't heard that kind of joy and laughter on our streets in decades hmm. and I was like I mean sometimes like tears would well up in my eyes when I and tears would well up in their eyes actually a lot right right right, <laughs> um, right. they were just like I never thought I'd see something like that in my community and it's just like I mean it just breaks my heart it does I mean it rips it apart in like so many ways and it makes me you know just so grateful that you know that this is this is literally my ministry Hmm. It is. It's like, I love God. I love my neighbor. This is the manifestation of both. Whoa. Now, one of the things that I'm really impressed with is you had four strategies that I was able to identify as I did my research. One was building the mixed income um, residences. Mm -hmm. Another one was developing vibrant third spaces like the Boogie down grind. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's what it's called. I love I that. To say the name before it. Yes, it sounds like called. a dance too. Um, it is. So <laughs> well, you're from New York. You know that the boogie down, the boogie down is the Bronx. So you know that. Don't tell me you. Well, know you know Brooklyn keeps on taking it, and yeah, I'll leave yeah, it at the that. The Bronx keeps creating it. All right. So how about we go there? <laughs> All right. So restaurants, bookstores. Carter's Boogie Down Grind Cafe. What are some other third spaces that maybe we should start thinking about as we look to revitalize, you know, revitalize our communities? Oh, I mean, it's parks. It's like it's 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 stores. It's it's where people. I mean, really, it's about where do people spend their money and their time. Are they spending it in their own community and taking all the beautifulness that that God gave them as a gift? and using it in somebody else's neighborhood? Or do they see the, the benefit of, of planting those seeds right where they are? It's like, we do need to see a few more seeds planted in our own communities. And I'm not, and look, I'm not, you know, hating on folks that decide to leave. I'm not. But what I do wanna do is just give people, you know, just a way to think about a change in their own community, which, is, which, which involves a change in their own mindset about where and what they want to be and how they want to grow, um, you know, and can they actually do it in their own community? That's really what I'm talking about. Right, right. Interesting. Uh, the other 
I guess a third strategy that I found when I looked at your content was helping homeowners to maximize the property value so they can resist selling out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was interesting, resist selling out and to help them build generational wealth. So yeah. those are two different conversations right there. So tap into both of them. How do you help homeowners and how do you build generational wealth? Well, actually, it's the same conversation, you know, because think about it there. Um, you know, there were tons of entitlement programs, you know, starting from the early 1600s that essentially made it so that white families could, you know, ha- create the American dream through home ownership or property ownership you know, Homesteaders Act, you know, all those things. We literally gave land, first and foremost, taken from, from Native Americans um, to build what became, you know, the, the, the West and also like everywhere in the country. And, um, you know, things from the GI Bill, you know, to be- easier access to capital, to, you know, um, you know, appraising homes that white people live in is higher than identical ones that the people of color live in. So those type of things made it so that white families could do better than, than people of color, in particular black folks. And we've got this like, and that's why the, the wealth gap is as wide as it is. So first things first, if we have homes right now, keep them. Do not believe, you know, the, and it's a lie, you know, from predatory speculators who call you and tell you that you're doing a good thing, you know, by cashing out now. Because, you know, I get those phone calls, you know, for, for our properties and it's they're real, they're real quick to say and to tell me point blank. It's like, oh, yeah, well, we're I represent like a you know a major real estate investor and, you know, we're interested in, you know, your community. It's like we, we can actually like help you help you help yourself by buying your property. And I was like, well, if you will, and this is what sometimes I do this stuff. It's like, well, if you're willing to do that on behalf of an investor, you know, and I got the property, I want it on that deal. Like, why, why are you not putting me in on that? Like, I got the property already. I, you know, I, I'm, I am that investor. And they're just like, and usually it's a click <laughs> because they know that, you know, they're not trying to include us in it. So, but what they're banking on is people from our community not knowing the value of our, of the land that we have. And, and it's the reason why, like, for example, the, the home ownership rate in Hunts Point, where I live right now, is um, less than 7%. People sell their homes early and cheap and almost always through predatory speculators with holding companies who can close early and cheap. So, yeah, we absolutely do play this very and still an informal role. You know, where we try to help people understand the value, you know, of getting their credit up, you know, working with become a first time home buyer, you know, to talk to people that own property already and convince them, try to convince them not to sell their home through a to a predatory speculator, but to go to a family, you know, within our community so that we can build generational wealth that stays in the community. So it is the same thing, like we, the same things that made, you know, white people like their, 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 their net worth go up as much as it did are the same exact things that would help us, but not if we sell early and cheap, not if we don't get into the game. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And that fourth strategy was showing. Okay. We just talked about that. (laughs) Okay. You're the bomb, sis. You're the bomb. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> All right. Uh, one of the things that I, I found intriguing is in your work, uh, in your your calling, you know, uh, you stated that you had to deal with the male and pale real estate industry. 
Yeah, I still am. <laughs> okay, so yeah. how do you deal with the male pale real estate industry? Well, you know, fortunately, at least, you know, fairly recently, some of them are coming on board and seeing me as a, uh, you know, as, as a partner, which is helpful. But I, I think especially early on, you know, you know, I like make it clear that this was the world I wanted to be in. And, and I got it coming and going, I think, from both, you know, the, the folks in the industry and even the government that was used to working with many of those folks who, um, you know, just did, I think, saw me more, you know, as an irritant or a threat rather than someone who can and should be, you know, supported to build the, the kind of local regenerative developments within our communities. And, you know, I think it was, you know, really based on the fact that, you know, for so many years, you know, the, the, the between, you know, the two kinds of real estate development, either, you know, the kind of gentrification that leads to, dis to, to displacement, you know, or what we call poverty level economic maintenance, that was so entrenched. And, you know, so in particular within the, the quote unquote. Wait, 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 wait. Go ahead. What? Poverty level. Economic maintenance. Wow. So, okay, we need to have operational definitions for those who sure. are uninitiated. Absolutely. Okay. So as you know, I mean, and you could see it, billions and billions of dollars, actually philanthropic as well as government, you know, goes into certain neighborhoods like the kind uh, like the South Bronx, the ones that I'm talking about. Um, yet they remain, you know, economically stagnant for the people that are in them. And it's almost as if there's an assumption that poverty is this cultural attribute and both the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, and our government like treats it that way, you know, by building the same type of infrastructure that maintains those levels of poverty, you know, and whether it comes in the form of government subsidized affordable rental housing, because God forbid, you know, they teach people how to like become first time home buyers, you know, and build for that, um, you know, or community centers or health clinics and pharmacy. Again, billions of dollars. People make money, you know, off of poverty, and you see it, you know, in terms of like the kind of architecture that's there. It's like you're not going to find, you know, the, but the, you'll people know it when they see it. You know, they're the type of right. places that have, um, you know, payday loan places and check cashing stores instead of banks. Um, you know, lots of ninety nine cent stores or dollar stores, and uh, you know, or corner stores. You know, which is sometimes like. A, the best place to buy people's food because you know it's not God forbid you've got like different diverse dining options and really good grocery stores, um, you know all those things. But basically, what they do it's all those things kind of concentrate poverty and all the things associated with it. But so again, poverty level economic maintenance or PLEM sometimes as as I shorten it to be, um, somebody's making all sorts of money. There's a lot of money to be made in in those areas, but. It doesn't benefit the people that are in those communities. Wow, that's intriguing. Okay, okay, okay. But do you, do you see that, or I I do, and you're actually helping me to see this in a different light, mm -hmm. and in a way that has a strategy behind it mm -hmm. that's going to lead to our empowerment. And the great thing is, it wasn't just this conversation. You know, I've been reading the book. Amen. Good. <laughs> I've been reading the book. So, Code Keepers, I encourage you i implore you as a matter of fact Please. um find a book you know success leaves clues <laughs> this is a manifesto this success is a manifesto so uh, tell us about um you know putting out the book what was that like uh you know it, it was it was sort of cathartic 
I think that's how you pronounce that word. I can see it written, but I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was a, a like it was it was good, you know, to kind of get it out because I wasn't sure I could do it. And uh, but it was with um, so sometimes it was hard to write. Sometimes it was hilarious to, <laughs> for me to write it. But for the most <laughs> part, I was just grateful that I got it out um, just to show folks kind of a little bit what I've been through. Um, you know, and like the trials and the tribulations, but also just some of the straight up joy. I mean, like I love what I do and I love seeing people, you know, enjoy, you know, the, the fruits of my labor. It's like, I don't care if they know my name or not. Um, it's just like, I can't tell you what it's like, you know, to see, you know, something that you've had a hand in building and watch how people internalize it for their own benefit. Like, it's amazing wow. it is amazing and so and i've seen other folks around the country you know do it in their own communities and so i talk about a bunch of them too and it's just super cool it really is wow wow one of the other things you talked about now i'm going to ask you my ultimate keystone question in just a second to kind of wrap things up but this nonprofit industrial complex now i hadn't seen that term or that phrase rather hadn't seen that phrase before. So when I saw it, I thought to myself that, you know, with some of the investors and the business people I associate with, you know, we keep telling folk, hey, look, we don't need another business that asks us to donate to them. Mm. But we can mm. use another business that can hire people, that can yes. put out a product that will sustain our people. Yes. Uh, so are we barking up the same tree? Well, you know, what not, do you mean by the not nonprofit industrial well, complex? Well, you know the, the like industrial complexes. You know, like Eisenhower talked about the um, uh, the military industrial complex, and that it basically worked. It created wars so that it could perpetuate itself. Right? Ooh. You make more wars, you can sell more weapons. You can, there's, there's like a whole industry around it, right? So there are other types of industrial complexes, and I think the nonprofit world is one of them. You know, it exists more, you know, to keep itself in, in, in uh, out there and available to say that they're doing like the, the best thing to support these folks. But, you know, especially when it comes down to low status communities, they're literally creating this, this, this thing that um, really serves more to perpetuate itself. They're treating poverty like it's a cultural attribute, like it's something that we just do because what else do we do in those communities? You're just either poor or you don't belong there. And that's why, you know, it's okay for, for the talented ones to leave. Um, but but if, there's also as well, like there's an industry making money around it. So that kind of hurts, right? Um, so, you know, if all the money that was the billions of dollars that were spent, you you would think that things would actually change in our communities, but they're not, and they haven't. And, the, and in fact, like one could argue that things have actually even gotten worse because we're not building the kind of infrastructure in particular on the economic side that's there to support people like us who were there. And so, yeah, thanks for flipping that so I could actually see you when you're not down there <laughs> on the screen. Um, so, but it's super exciting, you know, to think that um, we have the keys to our own economic recovery within our own community. And, but I also know that it's sort of almost like heresy to some folks where it's just sort of like, you know, the nonprofits, you know, these like, you know, um, the, the moral heart, you know, of our community. And I'm just like, if, if you're not building something that's creating and regenerating health and well-being in our community, then right. why you, then if we're not getting any better, then you need to check what you're doing and just reassess it 
And I know that that's hard, you know, for a lot of people to even think because, you know, we've been led to believe that, you know, the nonprofits and they're like the moral center and, you know, they really, you know, they're there for the community. And I'm like, okay, then I would like for my community to get better. Thank you very much. And not to mention, it's actually, you know, that many, much, a lot of philanthropy is, is simply, you know, racist in its funding. Like the kind of, like the, the little crumbs that are sprinkled, you know, uh, the people of color led organizations is, it's, 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 it's frightening. Like there was actually a crazy, wow. report, crazy report that came out that, you know, it's like climate change is absolutely going to be felt more by vulnerable populations. And in the States, that's people of color you know, and our communities, because we're the ones with like, you know, all the noxious facilities, you know, dealing with like low lying areas, all that stuff. And (laughs) there was a study that came out that showed that less than 2% of climate change funding going to those organizations went to people of color led organizations. (sighs) Family, we have some work to do. Hello. Family, we have some work to do. Family, we have some work to do we have and some we reading do to it. do we have some reading to do and we want to thank queen carter <laughs> for her work and we want to thank your father for the seed he planted <laughs> we're going to bring this to an end because i know we're at a hard stop right now but code keepers pick up the book read the book learn from the book and let's go out and do what she's doing thank you for being on code thank you for teaching the code i mean whoo <laughs> you know, you got on code, you shared the code, you taught the code, you became the code. Our code is empowerment. Yeah, man. And we love y'all. Peace. We love you too. Peace out. Thank you. <laughs>